Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Right. It is Basic Folk. We have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes. Thanks for listening. Hope you're doing great. We have Bill DC on the podcast today. And if you are in Pittsburgh, you know who I'm talking about. And if you're not, you might not know Bill DC, but he is a wonderful individual. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about in just a moment. But first, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Tina and Her Pony, a queer duo bringing traditional Appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century. Visit tinaandherpony.com. Basic Folk is supported financially and emotionally by motivational life coach Janet Forrest. Janet works with individuals with big dreams who need support and accountability to get moving, Visit JanetForrest.com to learn more. Mention Basic Folk and you will receive 25% off your first month of coaching. Bill DC is a singer-songwriter who is based in Pittsburgh. And in the mid-90s, Bill and his band The Gathering Field had an album come out on Atlantic Records. They toured the country. The band performed on David Letterman. And that was it. That was the one major label album that was put out by The Gathering Field. They released a few more albums and uh, kind of took a break for a little while, came back, released albums after that. But all the the while, like after that, Bill started releasing solo albums and cultivating his own passionate following in Pittsburgh and beyond. He is also the author of a couple of books uh, and just a a really wonderful person to talk to. He's very open and... um, kind of very honest, which is what this podcast is all about. So anyways, um, we're going to talk to Bill, but first we're going to take a listen to a song from uh, Bill's latest studio solo album. He put this out in 2016. This is the last song on the album Timeless Things, and it features singer-songwriter Maya Sharp. So we'll hear this song, and then we'll get to our conversation with Bill DC. Like a rock who haunts a long extinguished flame But the light is gone and can't recall his name He's such a stubborn old daft bomber He only wants to gaze upon her once again So he picks up a guitar and plays along To the end of the record song 
Bill DC, thank you so much. It is my pleasure to be here. Okay, so what we're going to do here, in case you don't know. I don't. We're going to talk about your entire life. Oh boy, yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so like going back to your early life. I was like trying to read up on you a bit and couldn't find anything about your family structure when you were growing up. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so what what was that like? Okay, I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, a neighborhood called Penn Hills. Beautiful suburb, not not really. Uh, <laughs> and it's uh, I grew up literally in the shadow of the Catholic Church. Our backyard kind of spilled out into the schoolyard where there was a Catholic school, Catholic church, a convent, rectory, you know, just, that was my world. Whoa. Is that the church that you, your family attended? Yeah. When I grew up Catholic and I went to school there, church there, everything. It's like you could never get away from it. No, but it was pretty awesome. It was like a, and I grew up in the 1970s, so, which was a cool decade to be a kid. Like when I think of like the schoolyard, that was my whole universe. There, the cast of characters I would encounter any day was just like so diverse and uh, it's just this whole world of personalities, but uh, but that was my whole world, and I was super Catholic for some reason. My my parents were kind of like liberal, progressive kind of Catholics, so can you talk like, more about what that means? That means like they really embraced Vatican II, like just a lot of changes in the church uh, to modernize and kind of become a little more accessible, like less Latin and less. Like oh, less so is Vatican II when they stopped doing the mass They stopped doing and all Latin. that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So like it kind of just made, brought everything. Women in. or people, we're going to speak English yeah. or whatever language. Ish. Ish. It, it was still <laughs> not anywhere where it probably should have been, but, yeah. but it was on the right track kind of. And there was this priest, uh, Father Slater, who was there. And my parents became like best friends with him. He would go on mm. vacations with us and stuff. And he was like, I don't know if he's radical, but. I remember he had the cast of Godspell sing up and down the, the aisle at a mass one wow. Sunday, and people like were horrified. You know, either you loved it or you were <laughs> horrified. And so my parents were more on the loved it side. Yeah. And I was just weirdly like naturally Catholic, even though my parents were so, they weren't like uh, preaching. Yeah. They didn't make me feel guilty or anything. I just naturally felt guilty. Right. <laughs> like, like it wasn't really their fault. Original I'm, sin. Yeah. Like I remember like when my grade school class would have to go to confession, eventually I would go last. They'd always let me go last because I would have these long talks with the priests in confession. I forget what we even talked about, but it wasn't like I had all these sins. It was like, I don't know. I was just like, I was kind of curious. I don't know what it is. I was just, I was a weird little Catholic kid. Kind of sounds like you were like reaching to be on a more mature level. Maybe. Than, that's an interesting than your thought. peers. Perhaps. Maybe that's how, or I might have been just wanting to appear that way. I think that's a great insight. And also just to be way too honest, I... Uh, <laughs> A, uh, when I was little, I had a brother who died when I was mm. a little, little kid. When I was three, he was one and a half. And that kind of like, as I get to the age I am now, I'm realizing that that kind of like shaped me in ways I didn't understand. You know, So I'm sure like kind of everything I did as a kid was sort of shaped by that without me right. knowing. Do you feel a hint of survivor's guilt? Absolutely. And I yeah. actually, I have other siblings who were older than me at that time. So we all kind of have our different issues from it, I think, based on where we were maybe developmentally. Mm -hmm. But I was at that, I think at a bad age for that kind of, and it's never good for a big loss like that, but I wasn't really verbal yet. And like I talked, but I just couldn't articulate anything. Yeah. So like I just left a lot of probably just unresolved things that I don't really understand even. I don't know if it's survivor's guilt. I think I just felt a lot of pressure to make everybody feel better, I think, in a, in a weird way. And I, I think and I think I'm just naturally sensitive to begin with, mm -hmm. like really, really sensitive. Like you're a huge empath. Yeah. So like I think I just like took all this grief and pain and everything and it kind of messed with me throughout my mm -hmm. life. 
And um, is your family the type to be very open and honest about their feelings? No, it's we're a weird paradox. We're I would call us a close family, and we can talk about anything that we have to talk about, but it's not natural. Mm. My parents were great, and they kind of like their generation probably dealt with grief a little differently maybe than ours would. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you couldn't ever say his name, right? You know, it wasn't like you couldn't talk mm-hmm. about it at all. But they didn't make a priority of hearing what we felt or, yeah. you know, like getting that out. So uh, there was a lot left unresolved. And that was a great question because I think that was like, they were admirable in how they got yeah. through it. But I think in a, it's in a weird way, it left a lot unfixed. It's so interesting <laughs> to, to think about, you know, I really love this book called There Is Nothing Wrong With You. Yeah. I talk about it almost all the time. Love the title. So, yeah, it's great. And it, one of the points that the book makes is that when you're little and you're looking for something from, like, um, an adult or something from, like, an older sibling or a teacher and you don't get it, then you start making up this story about, well, I'm not able to connect emotionally with my parents over this loss because there's something wrong with me, you know, and then you carry that and then that becomes like all of your defense mechanisms. Yes. The weird thing is when you get to like middle age, which I guess is where I am, that was a trauma in my childhood. Mm -hmm. I I never even thought of it that like in those words, but if you don't heal stuff, like I've heard recently, pain you don't transform, you transmit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I've transmitted a lot of pain to people close to me because I never transformed it. So like eventually you, you reach kind of a reckoning and you have to like, you have to kind of uh, dig into all that stuff. Yeah. It's no fun. It's not really fun, but it is, uh, it's just what, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks for sharing that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the kind of music that was in your house growing up. Okay, yeah. I mean, we know Godspell. We know Godspell, yeah, yeah, and I did like that. Um, for me, it all begins with Elvis Presley. I remember like commercials for like calendars or like you could you could order like picture books of Elvis. It wasn't It wasn't even music. It was just like, but I just saw him. And something about Elvis like really got to me, and I, and I would sort of beg my parents to to let me stay up late and watch Elvis movies, terrible movies, and then and then. Uh, was he always in Hawaii? <laughs> not always, no. But I uh, and I remember like uh, when I was six or seven, I had a birthday party, and I can still picture me and the kids that I was with in my basement, and someone gave me maybe my parents gave me um, a record called Legendary Performer Volume One. And the first song was That's All Right, Mama, at least in my memory it was. And I just remember listening to that song. It was almost like a narcotic or something entering my blood. Like I just like... The endorphins. Yeah, it was just like, yeah. wow. And I and I feel oh, like wow. in, a, in a way I knew right then, literally, what I kind of wanted to do for the rest of my life. Because it was like, I just wanted to be Elvis, really, is what it was. But there's just something, you know, it's like so weird, like Elvis, the Beatles, just those those few kind of transcendent artists that Beethoven or just stuff that like, it just gets in the ether or somehow it's like... It's like larger than it's life. It's like, I don't know why, but Elvis, without any logic or reason, just kind of like, he just like went deep, deep, deep into me. And it was the 70s, so it was 70s Elvis. Actually, yeah, and my dad from then on would like every Saturday, we would go to this store called Grant's and get, he would buy me a different Elvis single. There was like... You could still buy records in normal places, and uh, and I would get every every Saturday. And I remember initially I got mostly like the fifties, the fifties songs oh, okay. like Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel and all that stuff. And that's what I really like lost my mind to. But then I ended up loving every single phase of Elvis. There's wow. no bad Elvis. So when did you come to the guitar? Well, first of all, every day I'd come home from school, starting from first grade on, listen to Elvis records. 
rock on my bed, like sit on the edge of my bed and kind of rock to Elvis, which is who knows what that means. But like I would uh, just memorize every song. I would just fantasize of like being, you know, being on stage and it was just like I knew everything about Elvis. So I think in third grade I got my first guitar and I started taking guitar lessons and like classical guitar lessons, which I, and I was never like a super gifted guitar player. And guitar was always just a way for me to sing. Did you ever have a, I mean, you must have had a moment where you're like, classical guitar is hard and I just want to strum the same yeah, key chords. I, yes, I did. And I had this super like rigid, scary teacher first and he wasn't the right guy for me. And then I shifted to this woman, Mrs. Bittner, who was real fun and she got that. She taught me guitar. Uh, you had to do scales and whatever, but like she, she got that I really wanted to sing. Cool. Um, so let's talk about your connection to songwriters from the 1970s, which makes sense if you grew up in the 70s. I'm thinking like Carole King, Jackson Brown. What drew you to that style? And it seems like a, a style of music that you revisit pretty often. Yes, for sure. And uh, well, luckily, my older siblings, especially my brother, I shared a room with my older brother, Brennan. He especially was into, I mean, he was into all kind of music, but he had like, he just liked good music. So like, my first real immersion into like the kind of music that I would end up trying to make was um, like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, like Four Way Street, mm. and uh, so far, and like like all those like seventies. Meanwhile, they only made like really they only made like those first two records, and then yeah. they did about twenty greatest hits type things. But uh, <laughs> I just love that stuff. And then Neil Young, I got deeper into like he had Decade, you know, like the big retrospective. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that stuff... You guys were listening on vinyl, obviously. Yes, yeah. and like, oh, just imagine, like, just how good it was. So, like, I kind of evolved from Elvis. Elvis planted that seed of, like, kind of wanting to do all that, but then, luckily, like, my brother's taste led me into kind of songwriting. And really, like, I mean, that's the equivalent of, like, going to college in a way. It's like, every day, I, I kind of, like, studied it, like, harmonies and lyrics, and but I was always drawn to, to lyrical kind of rock kind of folky rock whatever but like i'm like sweet judy blue eyes and things like that where mm. you just like you know it's going to class to, to when you listen every day to that kind of stuff and uh he also liked you know he liked jackson brown some things i kind of like took and then went further with it like jackson brown for some reason always really resonated for me probably because of that deep sadness that was in me forever because mm. jackson brown is so sad really or because music is yeah well also it must have really resonated with you to find another male who felt that yes yeah and was able to express it yeah because I, I always felt like to me Jackson Brown was always a little bit different than like a James Taylor or something I mean it's all good but Jackson Brown for some reason he just resonated right on my frequency uh Jackson Brown was like a little cooler something about him yeah yeah and, although he was so sensitive mm -hmm. so which maybe isn't that cool like or you know I don't know it wasn't like he was no he kind of like made being sensitive yeah, cool right but he's like, James Taylor kind of is like a goofball. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, although I did like I did like. I mean, some everybody loves music. James yeah, but, Taylor. But, but I know what you mean. I just, I just never. I thought Jackson Brown was a lot more. To me, was more good. serious to me of an artist. But yeah. that's, that's probably not the right way to put it. But Jackson Brown just like late for the sky. Really, just those first few records of his, still like kind of can choke me up to even think about like how mm -hmm. I felt about that. But yeah, and he he like I don't know. He you could just hear like the obsessiveness he applied to his writing what like, do you mean well like the lyrics are so meticulous and so like spellbinding in a way like when you really they're all so he in particular like he writes very like kind of unusual patterns of lines just everything about it is pretty 
deceptive. It sounds like simple, but it's not at all. And like when oh, you, yeah. I mean, he has a few things, but like Doctor My Eyes or whatever, that's kind of maybe a little more simple. But I was trying ahead. to talk to I was trying to talk to um, so I had a musician on the podcast named Rachel Sumner, mm-hmm. and she was talking about how uh, so she went to Berkeley, and one of her professors would often take this class of songwriters to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston and sort of explain how painters would intentionally do things to their painting to like draw a person in and he would like compare it to songwriting how like people you know intentionally do things in songs to draw you in I was like is that like manipulation (laughs) and then I went off on this weird thing of like the good kind of like songwriters and artists in general like there's like a really a good kind of manipulation and it's and I've thought about it more since then and it's like if an artist can make you feel something without you realizing the craft then that is like yes. the ma- a masterful way of a good kind of manipulation. Yeah, that's great. What is the word for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it's just good. But I know exactly what you mean, yeah, cuz I it is deceptive Jackson Brown in particular just yeah, just like he spins these lines or just these words that are just um pretty amazing. It's funny like there are just a few records that are immersive experiences like listening i mean for me a lot of music is but like laid for the sky is immersive i feel like i disappear into it nebraska is like that van morrison's astral weeks i disappeared into that it's almost like it's all just surrounding you this music this world that he like especially astral weeks it's like what the hell is he doing here like i didn't even know i was blown away and i mean it's like i'm getting chills right now thinking about it but the first song on astral weeks if i've if I venture in the slipstream, you know, between the viaducts mm. of my, like, like, what are you talking about? It's like, <laughs> but I love it. You know, it's like, it's just so, it's so like mystical. And like, that was the first time I felt like, I guess I felt like a transcendent quality mm. that music could take you to some cosmic place. Yeah. So for me, I really feel like music makes me feel like the universe is inside me, which is like, oh yeah. it's true like to think about it like the universe is inside of you there's all this mystical things that humans can tap into if they really allow themselves to and music for sure is one of those elements yeah absolutely yeah and that's how without ever you know being too young to kind of put it into those words that you did so well there I just remember like driving to New Hampshire with my friend because our other friend was working at a camp there and just listening to Astral Weeks over and over and just... On cassette. Probably on cassette, yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely on cassette, yeah. Yeah. What else could it have been? I don't know. Are you Elvis Presley and have a record player in your limousine? <laughs> that could have been it. Yeah, so... But um, And it's kind of a bummer because I don't like... It's rare that I ha- I have that experience nowadays. Like, I hear music that I love, but I, I'm just not able to, like, internalize it so, like, kind of selfishly (laughs) i mean when you're young and you're connecting to music it is definitely a special time because you've got so many emotions like surging through your body you know so it kind of makes sense so if you can if you can even muster like a percentage of that yeah it's i think a success yeah and i still do like i listen to a little playlist of songs that still just kind of crush me so you and your wife did you meet when you were kids? We met. She went to the same Catholic grade school that I did and lived in the same kind of general neighborhood. Not like right in my schoolyard, but uh, but I became aware of her. We were always in different classes, but then I became aware of her, you know, maybe in fourth or fifth grade. It makes me wonder about like past lives or things. Because <laughs> once she was on my radar, I was like, wow, like just something. I was obsessed with her in a kind of a bizarre way. It, did it feel like you had just already knew her? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Kind of just, I mean, looking back on it, she just like was, she just became my... And I, and I would write her these crazy notes. And 
like I remember her mom kind of talked to me once, like, you might want to chill out a little bit. Tone it down. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, but it wasn't bad. It was just like, I was just so, I loved her, you know, from when I was a little kid. That's so sweet. Did yeah. she, did she, was it reciprocal? Yeah, it was kind of reciprocal. Yeah, it was. Uh, but we were both kind of like, but we were kids and we so, like, I remember she wrote me, we would break up or, you know, we'd have like ups and downs. <laughs> and then she, she wrote me some note where she put all the lyrics to, um, I will survive the song I will survive. <laughs> That was, that was her note to me, just the whole song, I Will Survive. I don't need you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but we, but then we went to different high schools and, you know, we kind of lost touch for a long time. And then when did you come back? In our 20s. She's kind of like, she is a person who has a unique ability to like bring people together. She's like a, she just like never lets a group go. So like when she's out of high school, she's still bringing her high school people to her college friends and like she just all every group of friends just kind of builds on itself mm-hmm. and so as I started to play music I realized that she 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 organized some kind of like grade school reunion or something that's how we reconnected but then she would come see me play sometimes and she would and I would need to get people to come see me and I just realized that she knew like 2,000 people <laughs> she was your street team <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so uh I was just, just, she would bring this, all these random people. Like she had a Russian pen pal. Like the first time she and I went on a date, she had a Russian pen pal. This is very typical of her, who it became this big thing. She she met him through some kind of program through Pitt, like Russia, the United States kind of thing. And then he ended up coming and living with her family, this Russian guy from Siberia or something. Wow. And so the first time she and I were going to go to a movie together in the afternoon, like a matinee, she called and said, do you mind if I bring my Russian pen pal? <laughs> and luckily I was hung over like I had seen the uh I don't drink anymore but like the night before I had seen the Clarks at the decade and I not and I was newly friends with them and I was drunk at the decade and had a horrible night like a this kind of plays into all the other stuff but I like I remember I kind of walked onto the stage with them and knocked guitars over and stuff people will still every now and then mention that to me like it was just kind of a bad drunk night um but I woke up the next morning hung over from that night and she said, can I bring my Russian pen pal? And I was just hung over enough to say, no, please don't do that. <laughs> and then she and I went and saw uh, Last of the Mohicans. Uh, and then the rest is history, I guess. I don't really know what to say. It's kind of bizarre, yeah. But just it's weird that that was also with that Clarks <laughs> oh thing. Because I was just getting to know all the Clarks and like, just like getting to know all Pittsburgh musicians. and Yeah, just, just... so people who are listening that aren't aware of the Clarks, the Clarks are like the Pittsburgh Three from the 90s. There's the Clarks... The Gathering Field and Rusted Root. Yes. So this is back in when the early '90s, late '80s. This would be, yeah, probably like '91, '90, '90, '91, and they were just kind of like, like I'll tell you what, man, I think was like their record, but they were just getting airplay, I think, on WDV, and mm-hmm. I actually don't know exactly where they were, but I had met Rob James from the Clark's, uh, at a he used to host host a, an open mic thing at uh, Graffiti, but so I met Rob then and. Rob just took me under his wing, and I remember going, the Clarks had a house in Highland Park, and Rob took me there, and that's just where I started to meet everybody, and I remember I would open for the Clarks sometimes, because they all kind of took to my songwriting, and three, the three who weren't Scott Blasey, the lead singer, would um, back me, and I remember like once in a dressing room, when I didn't really know Scott, he said, he said something about me, like, so are you dating my band or something? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you tried to steal the Clarks, <laughs> Bill! <laughs> But I didn't, yeah, so... But, that, those but were, then I didn't. <laughs> yeah, those are good, good, 
good time. So. Yeah, I have a couple questions actually about that particular period. It's funny because one of them is about Pittsburgh venues. Yeah. So I lived in Pittsburgh between 2007 and um, 2018. Okay. So the venues that I've that did not exist when I lived here, but still heard so much about were Decade, Graffiti, Sierra Mosque. Electric Banana, Rosebud, and Nick's Fat City. Yes. So I know them all by reputation because people constantly are talking about, yeah, yes. this happened a decade. Yeah, Sierra Mosque, I saw this great show. So I feel like that kind of nostalgia is something that can be found in any town when it comes to like lost music venues. Yeah. So what do you think that says about that particular type of venue nostalgia um, particularly in Pittsburgh, and wh- where do you think you fit into that nostalgia? Uh, that's a good question. Obviously, I don't know every city, but Pittsburgh seems to be a little more like past focused than most others. You know, than a lot of other cities. It has a rich history, and I guess everybody does that to some extent. But it seems like Pittsburgh is really good at that. In those venues, in that time, I feel like um, original music is kind of cyclical. Uh, there was kind of this one wave. At some point in the 80s, early 80s, maybe even late 70s, early 80s, like this band called The Silencers and Donny Iris and just all the stuff that kind of like blew up, mm-hmm. got national deals, whatever, you know, just everything. Like Joe Grishet, the House Rockers got rave reviews in Rolling Stone and all that. Mm-hmm. The 90s was just this other, just some, really the end of a, of an old model too of like record companies and radio and record stores and everything. Like that was the end of when a song on a radio could just change your whole life. Mm-hmm. But like, so the Clarks and the Gathering Field and Rusted Root, we just all came on that last surge. There was the National Record Mart was the record store then. and, and um, In Pittsburgh. Yeah, and the, but there were like, maybe like 40 of them. Uh, but they were, so... Was this a chain? It was a chain, but it okay. was in this area. So like, we would take, you know, 200 CDs and cassettes or whatever to the warehouse and they would disperse it. So you had distribution. It was like Pittsburgh like was weirdly set up for yeah. this. And then WDV started playing the Clarks, and then they eventually played uh, Lost in America, our song, and they and that just like, but so like a song could like light up the radio, and then you could get it to all these record stores, and suddenly, and you would like sound scan would be a big deal, like how many you sold, and suddenly like record companies. Sound were swooping. scan is like a, um, a something that allows you to like track your yes, six, and that your was record like, sales. Yeah, in all just... bands, we were all like obsessed with that. And was we would... that like how would you would you like look up look it up online like early internet? Would you like no, call? It was would pre they, that really. They I... mail you like your results every month or something. No, let me think how that would work. I don't know how we would know that. That's a great question, <laughs> but it's like a... I bet it was like a calling system it was, must can, have been a calling yeah. system yeah that's funny to think about but i know we would have like paperwork when we were touring that we would fill out because every venue would have to sign to verify we sold x amount because we knew we needed to sell like i think we sold probably you know a few thousand at least of, of lost in america when we finally put that out independently in the first like two weeks we sold a few thousand but it had to show up on sound scan because that's what all the record companies were looking at so it was kind of a not a game, but you had to like, I mean, you had to be able to sell those, but it was just this magical, I think I've totally not answered your question, but I just remember like how... You've answered all of my questions, <laughs> But it was, it was just so amazing. Like, I remember when we first put that out independently, that CD cassette, how, we were just like famous for a minute, you know, just right then. I remember like we would, we were driving all over Pittsburgh. Some stores were selling out instantly and we had to go get them more right then. And wow. 
Wow. And when I'd be there bringing the CDs and people would be stopping me because it was like they, they were there to get get it. You know, it's like I remember I was walking down the street and a mailman, I just heard a mailman whistling Lost in America. I was just like, it was just happening. I didn't even know how amazing it was, you know. You're just young and think, yeah, this is what's happening. Like, but it was pretty, pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that kind of like last golden age yeah. for the music industry was you you were definitely part of that wave like the mid to late 90s yes so um there's a piece of legislation that i love to talk about called the telecommunications act of 1996 okay which allowed major media conglomerates to hold monopolies in different markets in america so like that's the birth of um companies like clear channel Okay, so there was yeah. this giant fire sale of independent radio stations all over the country. Yeah. Like, you know, mom and pop radio stations, they were getting so much money. They're like, okay, this, you know, radio is difficult. I'm not making as much money as I thought I would. Clear Channel comes in and offers like so much money for their radio station that all of a sudden they own everything yeah. in town. And that's now called iHeartRadio. Yes. So... What year did Lost in America come out? came out in 1995 independently and then on Atlantic in 96. Yep. Yeah. So there you go. That was the, the that was, last, like, and I remember, where, yeah. where radio really in a regional area, a station like WDVE, which is the big heritage rock station in Pittsburgh, really was a kingmaker when yeah. it came to playing local and regional bands. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know when, I don't know the history of WDV, but like, the, you're right. And I remember kind of just hearing about those kind of, that big shift after our kind of biggest moment. Yeah, so what was your history with Atlantic Records? It's funny. It starts with my dad. My dad had reached out. My dad was, like, just funny. Like, he would send letters, or he just would do random things to try to, like, help us. But he somehow established contact with a guy named Bob Clark, who was from Pittsburgh, but was li was working for Atlantic Records uh, in L.A. And he was the head of promotion, I think, or he had a really good job with Atlantic. And he was this super sweet, nice guy from Pittsburgh, Bob Clark. And somehow my dad, who had the best, like, phone personality, called Bob Clark, and it just facilitated me sending Bob Clark some songs. So Bob just became this kind of champion of us. So he, he brought us to the attention of different people. And eventually we got signed by this guy named Jay Ferris. He had a label called Maverick. Is that right? With the squirrel nut yeah. zippers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He became like a subsidiary of Atlantic, kind of like Lava was. And there were just a few different things. But then Jay's thing eventually became full on Atlantic, and Jay became like a VP of Atlantic. Well, and then just as that was happening, he was the one who signed us. But I remember we got we Lava, a guy named Jason Flom, flew us to New York, and we thought for sure we thought we were just about to sign with Lava, which was a part of Atlantic. And we met everybody there, and we were introduced to everybody. Like this is who's going to do your promo. This will be who you're doing. And then we met Jason Flom, who was the head. And I guess we were just, like, underwhelming or something because he, uh, w they ended up not giving us an offer. You signed with Atlantic. We signed with Atlantic. Uh, but but I kind of knew within three weeks that it wasn't happening. You know, you could just tell. Really? Yeah, it was like a big bummer. You could just, like, you had all this, like, like, I was like, man, I'm on Atlantic Records. I remember s standing on a balcony of a hotel in Los Angeles holding the first thing I ever held with, like, the, with the Atlantic logo on, mm -hmm. on our music. And I thought... We made it. You know, I just had this feeling of like, oh my God, we've arrived. We're, we have a record deal with Atlantic. But they signed a million bands. And like, and they, it, was, it was also the era of like, they would just throw a million things out there. Mm. But it was interesting because 
Jason Flom in Lava, who who for some reason mysteriously didn't sign us, uh, they did. They then signed Matchbox Twenty, and Jason suddenly had all the love of Atlantic, and Jay kind of fell out of suddenly got ousted. There's just all this kind of weird oh stuff gosh, that yeah. you couldn't predict. But um, and I remember we w- we would tour all over the country, and everywhere we went, there'd be a big. Um, you know, you would see Matchbox Twenty stuff. No one knew them or us, but you would still see their displays, and they just had all right. the they attention. Had, yeah, they had the the um, promotional yeah, support. Yeah, and we just you, we'd be lucky to have a CD on the shelf. Uh, so I kind of feel like we could have been that, but who knows? But if we had been that, maybe I I would have like gotten hooked on heroin or something. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Oh, God. Um. Yeah, before we move on, that's an interesting comment to make. Like, you have told me before that you used to drink and you don't anymore. Yeah. And then we talked a little bit about that one fateful night at yeah, the Clarks. The Clarks yeah. Are, yeah, there were lots of those. So is that is that something that you struggled with, addiction? Uh, yes, and still do kind of. I have a, just an addictive personality. So it's like, and I think like all the things that you can get addicted to are just symptoms so, like, there's always the deeper stuff. So the stuff right. we were talking about earlier, that's the kind of thing like I really the, need to get. You know, the, the alcohol or whatever it is, the food, the, like, Anything, looking yeah. at your phone nonstop. It's yeah. all like a numbing agent. Yeah, you're just, you're self-medicating. Yeah. To, for me, it was like this existential kind of discomfort that I carried my whole life that I hadn't dealt with because I didn't even know it was there, really. Uh, because it all started before I could really talk. Um, so I'm just kind of addicted to anything I can be addicted to. But alcohol was part of it. And I was sober by the time all the good stuff happened in our career. Like, I was never drinking. Like, when you were on Atlantic. Well, yeah, and drinking. at our peak, you know, peak Pittsburgh stuff, it was all sober. I got sober in 1993 from alcohol. And um, but I, and I sometimes felt like it was a detriment, you know, hurt us in a way. Because I mm-hmm. couldn't party. Like, I just, like, people yeah, were partying like, with the A&R guys and all that. And I just wasn't doing that. Yeah, like... It, thinking about getting sober in 1993 it probably wasn't very cool or hip. No, and we were like an uncool band, really. We were a good band, but we were pretty subdued guys, and mm-hmm. we were playing. I wasn't, but the other band members were playing like chess in our van. <laughs> like, it's just like we were just kind of goofs. You know, sort of, I think if I'd been a little wilder, more like, you know, whatever sort of traditional rock. Like, played the game or yeah. something. It sounds like it really is all about connections yes yeah and it and was luck. so what was it like what was it like for you after atlantic was gone well it was hard you know it's like it was a little bit of a we were touring all the time so we we were on tour just non-stop never quite catching on you know like we kind of almost did a few places like i remember typical of our luck there was this radio station in chicago that played us a ton and we were kind of getting some, we were kind of clicking in Chicago, but then that station suddenly switched to like Latin music or, you know, like mm. it switched formats. And so like, just, we couldn't catch a break, but the, like Chicago, we were playing like bigger and bigger venues the way it should go. But that was kind of an exception to the rule. So we would just, we just got on all kinds of tours and we toured a lot with like vertical horizon. We had the same booking agent as they did. And we would just travel all over with them. And, and it was all and I mean, it was all amazing. It was a, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Just to play music every night is awesome. I, I loved it. So no regrets. Great. My life then shifted to songwriting. I mean, not I was always a songwriter, but that then I kind of got more into like publishing and I sort of started like you a went new down to avenue. Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. And it was during that time. Uh, we were on Atlantic and 
uh, I got a deal with Polygram Publishing, which was common. You know, like a band would get a record deal, and then publishers would give the songwriter a publishing deal. When a Gathering Field album would come out, would you get all the songwriting credit, or would the band get it? Uh, I would get most of it. There were certain songs that we kind of like co-wrote some of the music. I always wrote all the words. And really, just it usually was just me bringing a song to the band, and everybody just... And that's just kind of hammering right. out, but, but I would get this publishing. But yeah, so you get most of the credit, meaning if the song made money, you would get most of the yeah, money. The, the yeah. Song, yeah, the airplay and stuff like that. But n- none of that ever really became a giant factor. But it was a factor in the, uh, this publishing deals were pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the that era too, probably where like a guy in a rock band getting signed to Atlantic would get a pretty decent amount of money for the pub, you know, publishing deal. And it was a co-pub, meaning like you still keep half of it, uh, and that's unheard of now too. I think you don't. Really? Yeah. Now it's just you don't keep any of your publishing if you. Everything's just work harder mm. for the artist now. But then, I remember like I went to this thing in France that Polygram sent me, and it was like, with all these like it was uh, Belinda Carlisle and Jane Weedlin and. Um, Who's Jane Weedlin? She's in the Go Go's. Oh, with Belinda. And she wrote. She writes a lot of the songs, or she wrote a lot of the songs. Uh, Howard Jones, this uh, Bijou Phillips, who was kind of famous for. Mm-hmm. Just for being crazy, I think. But she, just for being a wild child. And um, just it was kind of this cool thing, but every day you'd write with different people and, uh, you know, you'd write a song. Um, so I started to have, get more opportunities as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And I was always into people like John Hyatt and people, you know, kind of songwriter songwriters who were artists, but like whose songs were covered a lot. This is so weird to hear you talk about this because, like, when I think about you as a songwriter and as a human being, I'm like, yeah. You, like this whole like Nashville like publishing deal kind of like weird um, artificial uh, relationships with people like that does not seem to fit your personality. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. So there's always probably like kind of a disconnect. But I wanted that life like the idea of getting songs cut and like having that. Right finance whatever else you were doing was sure. appealing to me but it's still like really like unsettling to think of like yeah the paycheck is nice but like how did you feel about that world well i never had any qualms with it because i don't view it quite how you're saying it like my first maybe i'm just being a little precious but about like it. but my first trip to nashville like a writing trip where i just went down and had appointments kind of where you're like every day you're meeting with a different person my first one ever was Kim Ritchie. So like Oh bam. Okay. So there you like go. <laughs> I mean and that's really the kind of people I was meeting with. So yeah. Kim and I never met her. We went to dinner to just kind of get to know each other. In the and she we talked about like a Kurt Vonnegut book, I think. And I think in, in a Kurt Vonnegut book, uh the phrase So It Goes is said a lot. Yes. And then the next day we met and wrote a song and it was called So It Goes. And uh and that was like my first then I was kind of off and running. And then through Kim, I wrote with a bunch of other, you know, this guy, Angelo, who was super cool, and he was in Kim's band at the time. So Nashville isn't really so, like, cookie-cutter. I mean, it is, but it, uh, but there's a whole like other the, culture there, too. It's like the Catholic Church. Yeah. All sorts of... Yeah, right. Wow, people are different. Yeah, right, exactly. Because, <laughs> like, Angelo, like, was just the coolest dude, and Kim Ritchie is, like, the greatest songwriter and singer ever. Well, okay, I want to talk about your family. So at some point, you and your wife started having kids. Yes. Five boys. Four. Four, okay. Four boys. Yeah. So it must have changed your approach to life and songwriting so much. Yeah, I guess it did. I, uh, it's my life, sure. Um, I mean, I just think you get a little, 
maybe it deepens things a bit, but I, I feel like I was always writing about the same kind of stuff that started more from my childhood, that mm. kind of those unresolved issues have always been kind of like playing in different mm. ways through my songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if if that kind of like opens a person up when, when you have a child and yes. then you see, you know, what could possibly happen to your child and you sort of reflect on your own situation yeah, and then like, that's when you start dealing with it. Yes, I remember I was in a, I remember very clearly I was in Nashville and I just watched a, some kind of biography about Johnny Cash or something. And, and I think he lost a brother when he was a little kid. And, yeah. And that just was hitting me. And I, and at the time, my son Luke... It was like Luke, a really awful accident, his older brother. Yeah, I think Johnny Cash maybe felt responsible yeah, for it. Yeah, because it was like a mill saw yes, kind of situation. Right, and then yeah. I think his father kind of held it against him. Yeah, so like for some reason that was in my head. And then, But I had my son Luke was three and my son, my next son Jonah was one at the time, which is how old I was when my brother died. And I had this kind of night of like kind of connecting some dots on just understanding that that was really, really still a big deal in me. Mm. And actually in the past like year, I've had to really look at a lot of, like I'm, I've been gone through a kind of a hard phase of uh, inward looking mm. and uh, realizing that I still have a lot of unresolved stuff. And I, you know, my songs have always been, I think like my best self, like trying to like lead and like, or to even explain things to me or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, but like, I feel like I'm, I'm at a place where I have to, I can't let this be unresolved anymore. Whatever mm. kind of childhood trauma stuff that is still churning around inside of me. And I'm dealing with it. Yeah. Can you talk about kind of like what steps you're taking to deal? Well, uh... If it's too private, it's no, That's okay. all right. No, like I'm, I, like I've always been a kind of a 12-step person. So mm -hmm. I've kind of recommitted to that. And I've been going to therapy and things like that. And just reading a lot and, uh... Like what are you reading? You should try that book, There Is Nothing Wrong With You. I will. I need books like that. But I read a lot of like 12. Right now I'm just so, I'm kind of recommitting to the 12 steps. So I'm oh, just okay. reading a lot of 12 step things. But, uh, and it's cool. Like, But I feel like it's kind of frustrating because I feel like I almost learned so many things at different times in my life, but I didn't quite, you know, like I should have. Like you get to the edge of it and then what happens? <laughs> something in, well, some, maybe the addict in me or the something in me, the, just the, the scared little kid in me that was never, never healed. Hmm. somehow like pulls me back from from it and I somehow convince myself that oh, I'm okay and I just kind of go on with my life and then two years later I'm churning back into the kind of the dark kind of hidden yeah I like hide in plain sight is what I do yeah so like I you know I'm talking and you seem you think I'm a nice whatever sensitive guy <laughs> but like really I'm just in my head and I'm kind of like secretly not you're quite, on the edge of I'm something. not quite yeah, yeah I'm not quite right yeah it's like it's it's hard to it's hard to see that if you're on the edge of something, if you push yourself all the way, you know, your life will be better. Like you have to go through the pain, yes, you know? That's so right. And now I guess what I'm really getting now is you have to feel that pain. Mm. Like, and now I'm just kind of concentrating, or not concentrating, but I'm trying to like, just let myself feel pain and understand that like, yeah, I don't need to medicate it in any way or like yeah. distract myself from it. I think that... The fear of the pain is actually worse than the pain itself. Yes. That's so good. The fear. And fear has been like my, my crippler of my whole life. You know, I've just been afraid. And I've, and I've been, and I'm like incredibly self-conscious and like, you know, just kind of like, oh, since I was little, I've just have, I've just felt like kind of an imposter. Like I'm kind of bluffing my way. I mean, maybe mm. everyone feels that a little bit, but. Imposter syndrome, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but I, but I have that. And I kind of had a breakthrough mm. recently where I was like, 
friends of mine said they love me. And it was on the phone and they were both like, they were both like kind of yelling to me, we love you. But like, they were just kind of being really beautifully generous with their emotion to me. Mm -hmm. And I hung up the phone and I thought, like, why can't I feel love? Like, I just don't, I can't, I didn't believe it. And I was like, and I started to cry. I was was driving in my car thinking like, why do I think that? And I think like I had this sort of breakthrough from my childhood where I thought, I think since I was three years old, I, I kind of felt like everybody's love for me was really meant for my brother who died. Wow. Or something that I was like kind of taking what wasn't mine. Maybe because I took everybody's grief and like, I don't know what it was, but I just, I, so from that point on, I felt like an imposter who really didn't deserve any good stuff that came to him. It was really wow. meant for my brother. So that was kind of a breakthrough and it's giving me chills right now, but it's just like, wow. so that's kind of where I am. You know, it's just trying to. Yeah. I think when you, when you block yourself off from pain, you also block yourself off from joy. Yes, for sure. Something to keep in mind. Yeah. Although they both still come through. You know, like I've, I have had a lot of joy and like I, I don't want to overstate it, but, but I can't understate it. Of but, course. But I've had a good, you know, like I, and that's where kids really have, kids like kind of get you out of yourself. Like my kids have made me so much less self-conscious and, and oh, brought how? me so much joy. What's that? How do they make you less self-conscious? Well, you just have to be silly. They're just like little kids. You're just kind of always trying to like oh, okay. light them up in some way. So it's like, yeah. I don't know, just like you just get used to being a goofball in a more consistent way. And, you know, they just kind of get your best love. And they're they're kind of like, they've been, the, you know, a big part of my life for 21 years. You also have written three books. Yes. So how did you find the experience of writing novels to songs? And I'm wondering like how that might have... Um, if, if you felt like writing a novel helped open up this, this part of you that was kind of holding you back in songwriting or Uh, how it changed your songwriting? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I've been more changed by, I've adapted one of the novels into a screenplay and that's like that form of writing, uh, has been more challenging and is kind of in a way more similar to songwriting in a way you have to like express things much more succinctly. Um, but the novels, especially Ransom Seaborn, it was it was kind of musical feeling writing. I remember I listened to music all the time as I wrote it. First of all, like I listened to the Bob Dylan song, "Not Dark Yet," over and over. It just became this thing as I wrote that novel. And like, I remember certain passages writing it where I would kind of lose my breath. It was so it felt like a performance almost. I just could feel like I was uh, hitting some sweet spot in the fiction. So to me, even writing fiction felt kind of musical it's just longer you know you need a longer attention span kind of but songwriting to me is like takes a long attention span because I don't usually get songs right the first time so it's like I keep working at it and every now and then a song will just be good from the beginning but uh you just have to really really be patient with that stuff Yeah, so the way that you write songs is pretty cool. I don't think this is your process all the time. You have the ability to start writing a song in the middle of doing something else. Like one time we did an interview at WYEP, and then you told me later on your way out, you started writing a song. Yeah. And then I read that one time you were getting like a haircut and you started writing a song. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little, uh, those are a little exceptional moments. Like the one with you was called Brooklyn Honey. And it was this. It was like bitter cold, but beautiful bright day. That that I did an interview with you, or I forget what we did. Yeah. But then I went, got back in my car, and I had this whole like melody and thing in my head, and I went home and wrote that. And it was similar. To the yeah, in New York, I was being 
it was my Good Morning America phase of life where I had the theme song and I was in, oh, whatever. So I forget why I was getting my haircut at this salon in New Just York. Just to interject, Bill DC, for four years you had the Good Morning America theme song. Yeah. You wrote that and they played it for Played four it years. and I was in it. Like I was in the commercial on national TV every day singing good, this song called Good Things Are Happening. But um, this kid named Levi was washing my hair before my haircut. And then on the subway ride after, I just started thinking of this. Like the first line of the song I wrote was, I was baptized by Levi in a second floor sink, which is exactly what happened. But then I was off to the races. So that's like not a common occurrence? Well, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's it's more common that I'll just be walking around and like some ideas will start to come to me. It's not, it's not always that direct. Once you get so comfortable doing something, it can happen a million different ways. Although I haven't written a song in a little while, and I feel like a big surge of music coming. Well, keep us posted. Yeah, I will. <laughs> great. Well, I think this is a great place to stop. Yeah, we have gone deep here. We really have. Oh, yeah, Lord. we need yeah. to, I don't know, like just take a nap <laughs> after this or something. But yeah. thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. like that bill dc it's a real class act thanks again to bill also want to thank tree lady studios for letting us record tree lady studios and the church recording studio in pittsburgh for letting us use their space to record thanks to dana and dave over there Uh, and also want to thank our sponsors for basic folk Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. On Basic Folk, you hear honest conversations about how artists are journeying from point A to B. If you could use support and motivation on your journey, Life Coach Janet Forrest is there for you. Visit JanetForrest.com and mention Basic Folk and you'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Our graphic, which, by the way, uh, is amazing, was made by Katie Crawford, who is so helpful and great. Our music is done by Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople. I'm Cindy House, your host and guide for these glorious interviews here on Basic Folk. Thanks for sticking this whole, all the way through the whole podcast. You must be a real huge fan, but I really appreciate it. If you made it this far and if you are not subscribed, please subscribe and please leave a review. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.